Tonight we begin our study in this second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. And tonight will be somewhat of a shorter study because we're only going to be covering the first 12 verses of chapter 1. But there's a lot in here, especially considering that this chapter especially, I think, speaks to the godly character of this persecuted church. And uh, I think there's really something for us in it. So let's take a look. Just starting off, jumping into verses 1 and 2, we read Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you're familiar with the letters of Paul at all to the different churches that he wrote to, you, you, you recognize this, right? You recognize sort of the form and the style, which was actually the familiar letter-writing style of that day. And Paul introduces three particular people in the very first few words. He introduces himself, of course, and then two companions, Silvanus and Timothy. Now, Silvanus, who was also known more popularly in the book of Acts as Silas, Silas and Silvanus are the same name, just different ways of saying it. Uh, this man, Silvanus, was a long and an experienced companion of Paul. He traveled with Paul extensively on his second missionary journey, and he was imprisoned and then set free with Paul in the Philippian jail. When Paul first came to Thessalonica, Silas came with him. That's in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And so the Thessalonians knew Silvanus well. When they first met Paul, Silvanus was with them. And so he also collaborated with Paul on the first letter to the Thessalonians. You can see that in 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Timothy, the third person mentioned in verse 1, is a resident of Lystra. He was a, that's a city in the province of Galatia. Timothy was unique because he was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother named Eunice. Now from his youth... Timothy had been taught the scriptures by both his mother and his grandmother. We know that from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 3, verse 15. Timothy was another, along with Silvanus, another trusted companion and associate of Paul's. And he accompanied Paul on many of his missionary journeys. Paul had sent Timothy to the Thessalonians on previous occasions. And so with Silvanus, Timothy was also a collaborator on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. So we got a feel for these three people, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians. Now we remind ourselves that Paul, this great apostle and missionary of the first century church, he founded many churches in different cities around the Roman Empire, and Thessalonica was one of those cities. He founded the church there on his second missionary journey. Again, if you want to look up the account, it's in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. But we remember that Paul was only in the city a short time because he was forced out of the city under threat of persecution by opponents of the gospel. But the church of the Thessalonians that he left behind in the city was alive and active. And Paul's very deep concern for this young church which he very suddenly had to leave because of persecution, it prompted this letter following, of course, the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And so here in the first couple verses, Paul brings his very customary greeting of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, hailing them with these um, uh, greetings that had a connection both to the Greek world and the Jewish world. By the way, there's some subtlety in the first couple verses here where he speaks of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
according to some trusted Greek commentators that I read, they make it plain to us that the Father and the and Jesus Christ here are one source together. The, the way that Paul constructs this sentence grammatically, it tells you that this one, excuse me, that God the Father and Jesus Christ together are one source of this grace and peace that he's speaking about here. And Paul, very early, one of his earliest letters to the churches, he places the Son right beside the Father as the fountain of divine grace, you might say, without any further need of comment or explanation. It shows us that Paul believed very earnestly that Jesus Christ was God. Uh, Now, verse 3, Paul says, We are bound to thank God for you always— Excuse me, to thank God always for you. Let me get the word order correct. We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. And you see, I want you to notice here, he begins by saying in verse 3 that we are bound to thank God always for you. For Paul, the giving of thanks for God's great work was an obligation. He was bound to do it. He was required to do it. And it was fitting for him to do it, as he mentions later on in the verse, because of God's great work in them. And by the way, we we notice here that Paul's wording is very strong here. He's uh, saying that he feels extremely compelled to offer this thanks. It's as if, now if we remember from the letter of the Thessalonians that Paul first wrote to this church, he praised them a lot. He complimented them an awful lot. And it's almost as if the Thessalonians responded by saying, oh, Paul, you know, you shouldn't say such nice things about us. You know, we're not as great as you think, and and you shouldn't compliment us so highly. It's almost as if Paul is returning that idea with this thing. No, Thessalonians, I want you to know that we are absolutely obligated to give thanks to God for you in this way. It's our duty to praise God when we see his work among you. Why? Notice here again, verse 3, because your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. In other words, the Thessalonians were enduring persecutions and tribulations, and it was the way that they were responding to these persecutions and tribulations that made Paul say, I feel absolutely obligated to thank God for his great work among you. Now, if we notice these two verses, verses 3 and 4 here, Paul thanked God because the Thessalonians, first of all, had, and you'll see this in verse 3, your exceedingly growing faith. Your faith grows exceedingly. Now, isn't that something to thank God for? If you see somebody exceedingly growing in faith, you should thank God. Secondly, he says, because of your abounding love. He says, and the love of every one of you abounds towards each other. And then thirdly, he says, you have patience and faith in all persecutions and tribulations. And I have to say that if you saw that in a group of people, if you could look at a congregation and say, their faith is exceedingly growing, their love is abounding, and they're showing patience and faith in all their persecution and tribulations, you would be obligated to thank God for that work. By the way, Paul uses sort of a rare 
ancient Greek word here when he uses the phrase, your faith grows exceedingly. The, the verb that he uses there is unusual, and it gives the thought of a very vigorous growth. He's not using the normal word for growth there. He's using one that is especially strong and vigorous. And so he says, I, I'm praising God because I see these great things in you, this exceedingly growing faith, this abounding love, and the patience and faith you show in the midst of your persecutions and tribulation. And then there's also another very emphatic thing in verse 4, if you notice, where he says, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches. Now, again, I don't want anybody to think here that I'm some sort of Greek scholar and that I've carefully studied the ancient Greek languages. And the first thing that I do when I start a Bible study is I get out my Greek New Testament and I do my own individual Greek translation. I don't. I'm not skilled in New Testament Greek at all. But, but I know how to read commentators who are very skilled in the ancient languages. And one of them a man named Leon Morris, one of my favorite commentators, he says that this phrase, so that we ourselves, is a very emphatic expression, much more emphatic than we would have expected in such a connection. It implies a strong contrast. You see, the idea here is that it would have been unusual for someone who planted a church to glory in its success and health. Right, let's understand this. Paul is complimenting so strongly this church that he planted himself. And Paul recognizes that that's a little bit strange. He recognizes that somebody might say, well, Paul, aren't you just patting yourself on the back? Aren't you just complimenting yourself? But Paul was so impressed by what God was doing among the Thessalonians that he took the liberty to glory in that work. I think it's really wonderful to see that. Paul recognizes, look, I don't care who thinks I'm being strange by doing this. I am obligated to thank God when I see this great work in your midst. Now, the end of verse 4 brought up sort of this shadow of persecution, right? Did you notice that? Where he says, uh, what was it at the end of verse 4? In all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Well, now he's going to talk about the tribulations and the persecutions that the Thessalonians had to endure. Verses 5 through 7. He says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Maybe we should stop right there, just with that first phrase of verse 5. Do you understand what he's saying? Which is, what is the persecutions and tribulations that the Thessalonians were enduring were manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now, I want you to pause right there and think about that for a moment. But put yourself in that context of the Thessalonian church. You're being persecuted. You're enduring real tribulation for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul comes to you and he says, the persecution and the tribulation that you are enduring is manifest evidence. It's open evidence of the righteous judgment of God. You see, God's righteous judgment was at work among the Thessalonians, beginning at the house of God. Don't we remember that phrase from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, where he says that judgment begins at the house of God. In other words, Paul says the judgment of God is at work among the Thessalonian church, not in the sense of punishing them, right? God isn't punishing them through persecution, but what he is doing is he's purifying them. 
He's purifying them as followers of Jesus. And the good result, and he mentions the good result later on in verse 5, the good result of showing them worthy of the kingdom of God was manifest evidence that God was good in allowing them to suffer the persecutions and tribulations that he described in verse 4. So again, let me read verses 5 through 7. We'll get the whole idea here, but I didn't want you to miss the importance of that first phrase. He says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So again, notice this. Here are the Thessalonian Christians. They're undergoing persecution. They're undergoing trials. And Paul wanted them to know God is present right now in your persecution and in your tribulations. And one way that he's present is he's purifying you making you worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, consider that for a moment. We usually think that God is absent when we suffer. God, I'm suffering. Where are you? And then sometimes we think that our suffering calls God's righteous judgment into question. God, I'm suffering. You're not being fair. If you were being fair, I wouldn't be suffering. Paul took the exact opposite position. He insisted that their suffering was evidence of the righteous judgment of God. You see, where suffering is combined with righteous endurance, God's work is being done. The the fires of persecution and tribulation were like the purifying fires of a refiner, burning away the dross and the impurities from the gold and bringing forth a pure and precious metal. Paul saw God very much present in the suffering and the persecution that the Thessalonians were enduring. And what was he doing again? He was purifying them. Notice the phrase in verse 5, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now notice this. Counted worthy is not so much seen as worthy as it is reckoned as worthy as the way that somebody would decree it. Paul's prayer is that the worthiness of Jesus may be accounted to them. And he says God is using these fiery trials, this persecution that you're enduring, to to do this in your walk. Now, he continues on in verse 6. Since it is a righteous thing with God uh, to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Now, again, many people question the righteousness of God's judgment. They believe that somehow God's love and God's righteousness or excuse me, God's love and God's judgment contradict each other. But I want you to notice something. God's judgment is based on the great spiritual principle that it is a righteous thing with God to repay those who do evil. It is right for God to punish those who do evil. And since God is righteous, he will repay all evil. And it will be judged and it will be accounted for. I want you to think for a moment about this possibility that we could say that every sin in the universe will be paid for. Every single one. It will either be paid for at the cross of Jesus Christ or it will be paid for in hell. But God will leave no unpaid for sin in the universe. No unaccounted sin. Now again, we see 
these statements in a much broader context. Uh, we, we see it in the context of the Psalms. You remember that? Some of those Psalms where David says, oh, Lord, I want you to get my enemies. I, I like someone where he say, Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. You think, man, that's a tough judgment for God to, you know, to break their teeth in their mouth. But David would pray such things. And then we say, David, oh, what a wicked man you are to pray such a thing. I want you to know David was not a wicked man when he prayed those things. Because what was he doing? David wasn't breaking the teeth of his enemies. He said, Lord, I want you to do it. God, I believe that judgment is merited here, but I'm going to leave it up to you to do it. And so he understands that it's a righteous thing with God to repay these evils. Now again, God will do this, again, by repaying with tribulation those who trouble you. God was also shown as righteous when those who persecuted the Thessalonians were repaid with tribulation according to their evil works. You see, I want you to consider something. It's probably... It's funny, I don't know why I'm saying that so much tonight. That's about the fifth time I've caught myself this evening saying, I want you to consider something. For some reason, that phrase is trapped in my mind. Maybe it's just something we all need to consider here this evening. But I want you to think about this. Well, that's just another way to saying, I want you to consider this. Look at this here. I don't know however I should put it. But the point is, if you take a look at verse 6, where it says, it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. The people who persecuted the Thessalonians were probably religiously motivated. When Paul was in Thessalonica and when he was driven out of town by an angry mob, that angry mob came from people from the synagogue who were jealous that Paul was taking people from the synagogue and bringing them to Christianity. The people who ran Paul out of town thought they were doing God a favor. And isn't it funny how much persecution has gone on in this world under the guise of people who think that they're doing God a favor? Oh, I think of the terrible history of Christian persecution against the Jews throughout the centuries. And so many of those people in the Middle Ages who terribly persecuted the Jews, they honestly believed that they were doing God a favor when they did it. But they were horribly, horribly wrong. Now, Paul recognizes this. Paul recognized that the people who were persecuting the Thessalonians probably felt that they were doing God's will. And so he wanted to reassure the Thessalonian Christians they're not doing God's will. God will repay them for the evil that they're doing. And what will he do on the other side for you? Look at it there in verse 7. And give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Again, put yourself in the position of a Thessalonian Christian. And you're being persecuted by other people who have a religious motivation. And, let me put it frankly to you, it seems like they're winning. Right? You're suffering. They're triumphing. And wouldn't it be easy for you to have your doubts? Lord, Lord, maybe you really are with them. Lord, Lord, maybe I am wrong. I mean, they're the ones who seem to be winning. We're the ones who seem to be losing. 
And I want you to see how Paul's words here to the Thessalonians are calculated very much to encourage these persecuted Christians. No, don't let it shake you for a moment. Even though you're being persecuted, even though you're having these trials, and even though the people who are doing it say they're doing it for God, they're wrong. And you will be comforted, you will be vindicated, and God will deal with your persecutors. Going on here to to verse 8. He talks about the coming day of judgment for the, both the persecuted and the persecutors. He says, uh, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Now again, put it in the whole context. Here you have a church of Thessalonian believers who are persecuted and maybe Paul fears. I don't know, maybe he has good reason for believing this. Maybe he's just anticipating the problem that might come along. But for whatever reason, Paul is afraid that they might come to believe that God was really on the side of their persecutors instead of God was supporting them. So what does he say? He says, no, don't you worry. God has a judgment appointed for those people who are persecuting you. And I know that it looks bad for you right now on this earth, but don't worry about it because in eternity, God will settle things up. In eternity, notice this, they're starting at verse 8, in flaming fire taking vengeance. That is what the day of judgment will be like for those people who persecuted the Thessalonians. You see, for the persecutors, and look at how Paul described them there. He described them as those who do not know God. Did you notice that in verse 8? No, they wouldn't say that they didn't know God, would they? No, 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 they would say, oh, yeah, of course we know God. We, we know God better than the people we're persecuting. But Paul says, no, 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 they do not know God. And then he continues to describe them, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that will be a day of vengeance and everlasting destruction. You know, it's very interesting to think about this. There are many people, not only in the world today, but throughout history, who persecute people in the name of God. And they do this claiming to give honor and glory to God. And and, and they would do this with the attitude, and it would be easy to think, Well, maybe they're right because we're all serving the same God, aren't we? This is what I want you to understand. The distinctiveness of the Christian gospel is the idea that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. If the God that they are serving doesn't look like Jesus, and I don't mean look in appearance, of course. I'm not talking about that growth great paintings you've seen of Jesus, those stylized descriptions of him that you see. I'm not talking about a physical appearance. I'm talking about in his character, in his nature, in his personality. If he doesn't have the heart and the character of Jesus, then that's not God at all. Matter of fact, many people, when they get to know Jesus, when they take a look at that character and they compare it to their prior conception of who God is, they're surprised to think, I never really knew God at all. And that's why Paul can say, even though these people may have a religious motivation for the persecution, they do not know God. And therefore, as he said in the first few words of verse 8, God will take vengeance on them with flaming fire. You know, of course, 
we know that the suffering and the torment of hell has been described to us as being fiery, right? The lake of fire, burning, torment. But I want you to think for a moment here that it isn't the fire that makes hell what it is. In the fiery furnace, the three Jewish young men were completely comfortable as long as the Lord was with them in the fire, right? It's not the fire that makes hell hell. What truly characterizes hell is that there people are from the presence of the Lord. As he describes it here in verse 9, where he says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. That's in the sense of being apart from anything good or blessed in God's presence. From the presence of the Lord sums up the Bible's understanding of hell. Nothing more needs to be said about its horrors other than hell will be completely devoid of God in every aspect of his character except for his unrelenting holy justice. Some people say that the terror of hell will be that there will be no aspect of God there. That's not true. The only aspect of God that will be present there is his justice. And that is what makes hell, hell. Now, I want you to understand this, that it's not wrong for God to take vengeance. When we hear the word in English, vengeance, we almost always associate it with a negative idea. We think of like an unfair retribution for a wrong. But again, we have to understand what this word means in the ancient Greek language. In the ancient Greek language, this word vengeance has no associations of vindictiveness. It's actually a compound word based on the word rendered righteous. And really what it has in mind here, and I like this quote from Leon Morris, he says that it has in mind the firm administration of unwavering justice. That word vengeance really has the idea of absolute justice. The idea is that the full justice is put on the offender, nothing more and nothing less. And I have to say that there's another phrase that catches our attention right here in verse 9, where he says, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction. We must not be moved from the idea that the punishment of the wicked is everlasting. This is coming to be a more and more popular idea in the world today, I'm sorry to say. There are more and more people coming up with what you might call a modified view of annihilationism. Are you familiar with what annihilationism is? Annihilationism is the doctrine that a person who goes to hell suffers for some period of time and then they just simply cease to exist. And so annihilationism teaches that the suffering of hell is not eternal, but it's only for a limited time, and then the person ceases to exist. This idea is becoming more and more popular because people are uncomfortable with the idea of eternal punishment in hell. And can I tell you this evening, I am uncomfortable with the idea of eternal punishment in hell. I don't like it. I don't think anybody likes it. But I am bound absolutely to tell you what the Bible says. And it says right here before our eyes in verse 9, with everlasting destruction. The punishment of the wicked is everlasting. Just as much as the blessings of heaven are eternal, the penalty of hell is also eternal. Now, 
In contrast, look at it here, verse 9. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified among His saints, or to be glorified, excuse me, in His saints, and to be admired among all those who believe. You see, for persecuted saints, for those who believe, they will have God glorified in them on that day and they will see and admire Jesus more than ever. I have to admit, you take a look at this and it's amazing to look at each word there in verse 10 and consider what it means. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints. He's going to be glorified in you, in me. And that will be amazing to see. That will be amazing to see how God will glorify himself in us. You know, we all live every day with a great sense of our own limitation. What our own weakness, what our own sinfulness, what our own inability makes us unable to do. We oftentimes wish or maybe fantasize that we were better or different or more wonderful people. But there will come a day when God's people are truly glorified. And Why are they glorified? Look again at verse 10. To be glorified in his saints. And to be admired among all those who believe. God will be more admired among us than ever. Yes, Paul tells us that we will admire what God has done in us and what he's done in other people. As you might imagine, Charles Spurgeon has a wonderful quote on that thought. He says, Those who look upon the saints will feel a sudden wonderment of sacred delight. They'll be startled with the surprising glory of God's work in them. We thought he would do great things, but this surpasses conception. Every saint will be a wonder to himself. I thought my bliss would be great, but not like this. All his brethren will be a wonder to the perfected believer. He will say, I thought the saints would be perfect, but I never imagined such a transfiguration of excessive glory would be put upon each one of them. I could not have imagined my Lord to be so good and so gracious. That will fill our hearts with a greater admiration for God and his work than ever before. And then the final aspect here to verse 10, where he says, because our testimony among you was believed. Isn't this awesome? Paul here, in the last few verses, has basically shown us two tracks for humanity, right? One track of everlasting destruction and one track of everlasting glory. Well, you might ask yourself, what's the difference between the two tracks? He says, because our testimony among you was believed. This shows the difference between one destined for judgment and one destined for glory. The difference is belief, faith, Trust in the message that Paul preached, which he calls here our testimony, the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, when you think about this, Paul is writing, trying to encourage the Thessalonians in the midst of all their persecution, right? Here they are, they're being persecuted. It's discouraging to them that the people who are persecuting them are claiming God is on their side. Maybe the Thessalonians are beginning to waver. Maybe God is on their side. After all, it seems like our persecutors are winning and we're losing. How do we handle all this? I think Paul had a special ability to write to those people in that circumstance. Do you know why? Because Paul himself was once a persecutor, right? And not only was Paul himself once a persecutor, Paul himself was once a persecutor who thought that he was doing God's will when he persecuted those people. 
Paul said, I know exactly how those people are thinking, and I know how wrong they are, because I was just as wrong as they are right now. Paul knew what it was like to be transformed from a persecutor to being a persecuted person. And he believed the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it changed his life from being someone who practiced persecution to someone who actually suffered persecution. Well, in light of all this, we would expect Paul, after you know, sort of being so poetic and so strong and so encouraging, he'll do right here in verses 11 and 12 what we've often seen Paul do before, so it doesn't surprise us, he's going to pray. So notice this prayer here, starting at verse 11. He says, Therefore we also pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, since the Thessalonian Christians were in the midst of persecution and tribulation, they needed prayer. And Paul here assured them that he and his associates prayed always for them. And what did they pray? Notice it there in verse 11. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. Well, what calling? The calling to suffer for his name. He's called you to be persecuted. He's called you to a place that requires great endurance and great faithfulness to the Lord. That is a high calling that you should be honored by. God gives Christians a high calling. And the calling ultimately ends in seeing him glorified in us at his coming. And so Paul rightly prayed that the Thessalonians would be counted worthy of this calling, and he shows them the ways to fulfill this calling. How do you live worthy of this call? We'll take it apart here, right here in verses 11 and 12. First, we live worthy of this call where, in verse 11, we fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. In other words, you live a life touched by the goodness of God, and displaying the goodness of God. You know, really, if somebody were to look at your life, would they say, God must be good. They're a follower of God. And I can tell from their life that God is good. That's what he says right there. Fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. Can anyone tell that God is good by looking at your life? Secondly, he says that you live this life worthy of his call when we fulfill the work of faith with power. Right there. Did you notice that at the end of verse 11? And the work of faith with power. When we believe on Jesus and see his work done all around us by faith, we see the work of God done and not just done, but done with power. Then that's a testimony. Then we are living worthy of this calling. Here's the third aspect. We live worthy of his call when the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified in us. Now, this means more than just the name of the Lord Jesus as a word, but also a representation of his character. In other words, you you could wear a T-shirt all the time that says Jesus Christ, and that's your T-shirt every day. Wow, he's really glorifying Jesus Christ. Well, look, it's good that you're getting the name out there, but it would be nice if you actually lived like Jesus wants you to live. If you had a life that was marked by his character and his nature, that is something that would really give glory to God. That's how you can live worthy of his call. And then fourthly, 
We live worthy of his call when we are glorified in him. Notice it there in verse 12. First, he says that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. In other words, when God alone is your source of glory and exaltation, and who you are in Jesus is more important than who you are in anything else or in anyone else. That's how you can fulfill this high calling that he's given you. Now, you say that's a pretty high call to put on us. I need to display his goodness. I need to do his work with faith and power. I need to have the name of Jesus Christ glorified in me, and I need to be glorified in him. You say, okay, how do I do this? How does this happen in my life? Look at it, the very end phrase of verse 12, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This great work of living worthy of his calling can only happen according to the grace of God. It happens by his power, his favor, and the understanding how he accepts us in Jesus Christ. And as it does that, it moves along our will and cooperation with his. So here in this first chapter, sort of to sum it all up, we see Paul very earnestly speaking to these persecuted Thessalonians. But we we shouldn't miss the point for us. You know, we we see in the world today a good deal of confusion about, you know, is this person acting in the name of God? Is this person against these other people? Are they acting in the name of God? Put away all of that. Put your focus instead on Jesus Christ. And have your focus where it should be. And doing that, you'll understand God has these two ways. Let God take care of the people around the other way. You... Endeavor to be worthy of this calling that he's given you in these four ways that we spoke before of reflecting his goodness, of fulfilling his work with faith and power, of seeing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ glorified in you and of you being glorified in him. This should be our focus, even for the person who's undergoing great persecution. See, you know what I love about this passage sort of in conclusion here? Paul challenged the Thessalonian believers here, right? He carefully reassured him, but he challenged them to fulfill the calling that they had. Now, I guess there's a tendency within us to see somebody who's suffering under persecution or suffering under some difficult time, and we don't want to challenge them in any way. There, there, it's okay. Nothing is expected of you. Oh, just everything should be soft and easy for you. Well, Paul did give them the reassurances, and we see that very strongly in this chapter. We can't ignore that. But at the same time, he gave them a very strong exhortation. Live worthy of this calling that God has given you. Fulfill that even in the midst of your difficult time. We should never let our present trials and difficulties be an excuse for us to not answer this high call that God has upon our life. Yes, Lord, I am going through a tough time. But that means all the more I should give myself to answering this high call that you put on my life. Father, that's our prayer here this evening. We think about it, and Lord, to be honest, uh, we, we read this passage tonight, and at least in our setting, in our nation here, in our, our uh, city, we feel very distant from this kind of persecution that the Thessalonians were facing. 
We know, Lord, that many people in this world are not distant from this persecution. And we think of tonight and we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters all across the world that you would give them the comfort, that you would give them the assurance of knowing that, Lord, you will vindicate them, that you will take care of those who are persecuting them. And, Lord, just as you gloriously changed the Apostle Paul himself from a persecutor to someone who was persecuted, that you can affect that change in people today. Lord, by the same token, whatever trials, whatever difficulties we have, help us to never use them as an excuse for not fulfilling this high call that you put before us. You have given us this high call of a heavenly destiny and glory. Lord, let, it, let us use that for a great encouragement to continue on and to glorify you more and more each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.